Jason Agan. And I am Andy Beckett. And we are two siblings who are on polar opposites politically, and yet we get together once a week and we talk about issues of the day, current events, different topics that are important to us and many of the American people and things that are kind of in the news every day. So that is the purpose of this podcast is to have a discussion of differing philosophies in a respectful way to talk about things that are, again, important to us and to everybody else. So we thank you for joining us. You can find us wherever podcasts are distributed, and you can find us on Patreon if you would like to support this program. If you are interested in sponsoring this program, please feel free to send an email to info at loveyoulikeabrother.com, and we will give you a shout out on the air. Yeah, and don't forget to also include, too, if there's certain topics that you'd like us to discuss. Morrison, I feel that, you know, as brothers, but also as people from the different political perspectives, that we pretty much cover the gamut of whatever the zeitgeist is, right. to, quote, <laughs> to quote the German. Yeah. But whatever the topics are, because that's the nice thing about not only being family, being a brother, but also being a fellow American, is that we can talk about stuff that is pretty topical. You know, stuff that's out there in the news and kind of cut through it from just a, a Main Street perspective, average Joe kind of, um, you know, look at the world. Right. And that, that's yeah. refreshing, actually. Yeah. I really enjoy doing these podcasts. Me too. So. And, and uh, you know, neither of us are attorneys. Neither of us are elected officials. While we certainly both have our deep felt opinions, one of the things that I've always appreciated about my relationship with Andy is over the course of the past almost 30 years, we've been having telephone conversations and in-person conversations about these issues. And so a couple months ago, we decided that it would be a great idea for everybody to kind of get a bird's eye view of what these conversations are and why they're meaningful to me. And, and I think I can speak for Andy why they're meaningful for him as well. Yeah. No, I think um, the older I get, the more I realize just the value of just simple, honest communication. And that doesn't mean that people agree on everything. Sometimes passions get arisen. But at the end of the day, there's this baseline of, of humanity, civility, connection, I think, that sometimes is missing in current published dialogue, at least. You know, the food fight type atmosphere, people just posturing. You see that on TV all the time, which is why you know, it's very hard to listen. It's very insufferable when I turn on either one political slant or the other. It doesn't matter. On either side, everyone is basically talking to people that agree with them. And they're catering to what they believe to be people that are already in their tribe, if you will. And that's really, um, that's something that's it's been disturbing. It's been nagging at me for many years because that's not human. That's not normal. That's not how, what has traditionally made America kind of a really awesome place is that you have honest people coming from maybe sometimes totally different perspectives that can have an honest, meaningful well, dialogue. Yeah. Let's take so. a look at Cornell West and Robbie George, right? Both Princeton professors. Robert George is a kind of in your vein of pretty staunch conservative and obviously Cornell West, who was a Bernie Sanders delegate and, and mm -hmm. among other things, those are two guys, you know, of course, Cornell West is also an African American, Robbie George, pretty waspy. And mm. these are two people who literally love each other like brothers. It's one of the things that I wanted to kind of emulate. I hadn't even heard about that relationship before we decided to start this podcast, but seeing that and then reading the Arthur Brooks book, uh, Love Your Enemies, kind of turned me onto that. And I've watched a few YouTube videos of their discussions, and it's been just fascinating. And they teach classes together at Princeton. 
Hmm. And it's uh, nice. it's really remarkable, that relationship that they have, the respect that they have for each other, even though they don't necessarily agree with each other on almost anything. <laughs> so, Yeah. But again, like we were talking about before, and my, I'm, I think I'm maybe on a personal mission, but part of my educational background is that I had the chance to actually learn. And basically because I was paying money for it out of my own pocket and I had to work for it, it wasn't given to me. And it was expensive. I said, if I am going to pay for my own education, it better be damn good, and I better get my money's worth. Otherwise, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to ask for a refund. <laughs> and I started, and that's when I started learning. That's when my professors paid attention to me when I said, if I don't learn something, or if you give me a, a non-educational answer that doesn't teach me how to think and tells me what to think, I'm going to ask for my money back. Right. So then they started listening, and I started to find that that's when I really started learning. It was what we call an aha moment, right. you know, like when you're trying to learn something new, like Morrison's a genius at audio technology, recording engineer, all that. For me, I would get the black shakes if I am at the board too long. But I appreciate the fact that his passion, his discipline goes into that. He knows all these things that that fog over. Well, I had those aha moments in my life, but for different things. Right. And that's the kind of cool thing is that this natural specialization in America, that's why I like, like watching shows like Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe, and all that yeah, too, and, sure. and I appreciate his perspective. Sure. His TED Talks are great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Very informative guy, and I kind of come from that ilk, very kind of blue collar in one way. Yep. Even though I'm highly educated, I would argue, because I spent too many years in school and have tons of student debt, I'm actually more of a micro guy. I believe that you know, if you want to go into HVAC, you're not inferior because somebody becomes a double major at Princeton in ethnobotan liberal feminology or whatever it is. You know, I just and, made that up on the spot. It's yeah, probably no. a real degree. Uh, <laughs> uh, but at Indiana University, you can major in anything. So if you wanted to create that major, you yes, could do that. As long as you pay the tuition. As long as you pay the tuition. I don't ever want to come off as a Pete Buttigieg shill. But I do have a lot of respect for him, and I admire him and his campaign and, and his views significantly. And, and one of the things that he said I think that's really interesting, and I think that a lot of people can agree with, is that we've made college so unaffordable, but we've also made it so unaffordable to not go to college. And that should not be the case. It should not be... Can you repeat that? Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's also become too expensive to not go to college. Meaning in, what? Can it... In terms of uh, lack of opportunities, lack of upward mobility, things like that. So when you're talking about things like getting into trades, plumbing, HVAC, cleaning out septic tanks, whatever, people who own septic tank cleaning companies are not necessarily passionate about cleaning septic tanks. But they do make good money. They, they, <laughs> they're very passionate about playing golf in one of their three Florida homes. Uh, yes, that, that's, that that's a great, great point. Yes. So, and mm -hmm. certainly that's not something that requires a collegiate education. Yes. Uh, neither owning a lawn management company who happens to be the lawn management company that takes care of all the, mm -hmm. you know, any of these corporate parks or what have you, mm -hmm. you know, you're not necessarily passionate about cutting grass and trimming around hedges and stuff, mm -hmm. but you're passionate about a, that you do excellent work and that you're paid well for it. And that you have employees who, uh, who are not shareholders, but stakeholders because people who own companies, I feel that they're responsible to, and this gets in a totally different conversation. It's one I want to have with you at some point about how corporations changed over the past 40, 50 years um, from being stakeholder responsible to shareholder responsible and why I feel that that's detrimental to the American dream, honestly. But Sure, but there, there are um, different levels of corporations too. You know, you know, IBM or General Electric is going to be different from, say, a company like, say, here locally in town, like Sweetwater, let's say, sure. which probably answers to its stakeholders and employees and its 
business clientele more than, quote unquote, some invisible shareholders in a back room. Sure, right. Well, Sweetwater's a privately held company, too. Well, that's what I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that most companies in this country, most business and and job providers are actually, I believe, 54% roughly private which is a pretty that's, significant. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably correct. And I think you'd probably be pretty surprised to see that that number's fairly low comparatively to, say, in the mid-70s or the late-60s. You know, Really? I, I don't know I, the statistics I, on I, that. I don't know either. And again, I, right. I think that this is worth a podcast worth of information. And, yeah, and so Let's find some it. of those statistics out there. And Well, my point, though, is that the, the only point I want to make is that the average American doesn't work for a nameless, faceless corporation, typically. Um, I think that small business accounts for a lot of it, entrepreneurship. I guess that would be and, an interesting, I, I think that would be an interesting thing to find out is the number of people who work for large corporations versus who work for privately held firms. I doubt that that. Um, so the PhD major that major coffee at Starbucks today, uh, for example, yeah. works for a large corporation. <laughs> Right. So the thing that we wanted to talk about today is the Electoral College uh, to reform or not to reform. That is the question. So (laughs) (laughs) great topic. And as a ultra conservative in some ways, the conservative in me typically takes the notion that conservation, the word conserve conservation means that when something's good, when something works, you don't change it just to change it. You don't fix it till it's broke or because you're unhappy with the results for your own personal constituency. And nothing's perfect. It doesn't mean that we let the perfect become the enemy of the real. So, yeah, so I'll be offering the perspective that the Electoral, electoral College is imperfect as it is. Um, we live in a republic, not a quote-unquote true democracy, thankfully, and that the Electoral College is part and parcel of what makes American a politics essentially more democratic than the alternative of one man, one vote, one time, like in other parts of the world, or a pluralistic parliamentary type system like you see in like the democratic parts of Western Europe, for example. And so I would be coming at it from the perspective of that the Electoral College is excruciatingly outdated, that it actually actively works against democracy by valuing one person's vote over another by making one person's vote more valuable than the other. If you look at the math in terms of the Electoral College votes that are available, do you know how many people live in Montana? Uh, probably less than 800,000, last I checked. It's 1.0, I think it's 1.06 million. Oh, it's gone up. Yeah, well, that's it's great. gone up. So it's mostly in Jackson Hole, I think. Uh, in California, there's, so in Montana, there's three electoral votes. I think that sounds about right. In California, there's 55. Right. And there's almost 40 million so people. So one that vote can... counts more than the other. I'm yes. going to concede that because you're actually right. I've done some looking into it since I knew we had a chance to prepare it for this It counts three podcast. times as much. Yeah, that's Three times fair. as much. I'm going to actually concede you that point because technically you're correct. However, the only thing I would have an issue with is the notion that somehow this, as to what more or less democratic means. It's funny because, and this is a perspective that you're probably not going to hear from other people, my perspective is, is that what is worse, one vote counting more than another or one type of vote, meaning the actual opinion that goes into the vote, which I would argue from my side in defense of the Electoral College is actually the lesser of two evils, if you will. But go ahead. Please elaborate on your point. Well, it's, yeah, it's really so, good. Thank you. I will elaborate on that. And so I think that if you look at the math mm-hmm. in Electoral College votes versus population, that they are not equatable. Somebody in Montana 
their vote counts literally three times as much for their three electoral college votes as somebody in California with 55 electoral votes with 40 million people in the population of California. And you would see the same thing with, say, Delaware and New York. And you would see the same thing in, you know, if you do the math, the electoral college votes are not representative of the population at all. They're wildly divergent. Now, I understand that three electoral college votes is the minimum for a state. I don't really know the reason for that. You know, maybe it has been different over the course of time. Or, I'd love or to give a little bit of history on that so. because I think the, that's important because the background of the, of the electoral college has a lot to do with the geography of the United States and what the founding forefathers, if you will, mm -hmm. um, we'll just call them triple F. So when they were creating, you know, a lot of conflict, a lot of debate, discussion, and many, many, many years uh, went into creating this imperfect thing that we call the American Republic. And it's been evolving over time. Fortunately, its operating manual has even the devices within it to then sort of fix itself. Thankfully, through the, like the amendment process, et cetera, we can you know, talk about that ad nauseum. But the nice thing about the Electoral College is that you are correct in saying that it does dispossess, in the sense, the straight majority line personal vote. It does. It does mm -hmm. give that person, in a sense, in Montana, more power with their vote than, say, somebody in urban Los Angeles, let's say. And actually, and my only position there is that that actually is a good thing in the sense that it's a lesser of two evils. I would simply argue with it, because again, I, before I even get into that, I'd really want you to develop your opinion more sure. and your side of it, because I think that's good. But I, I Alaska is another good, uh, good example. Uh, population mm -hmm. of Alaska, off the top of your head? Uh, population in Alaska, let's see, mostly people live in Juneau and Anchorage and below the... Mostly in Anchorage. Yeah, mostly in Anchorage. So Fairbanks would be the next one. I'm going to go with 2.7 million. In, in Alaska? In Alaska. 400,000 people. 400,000 people, wow. Yeah. Does that include Sarah Palin's immediate family? or? Y yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. In and whatever Russians she can see from her house. Yeah. Sorry, just had to get that in. So, Texas... 14 Texas, million. 14 million. Okay. 14 million. That sounds about right. So Texas has 29 electoral votes. Mm -hmm. Alaska, also three. The ratios are incredibly off. And so I have a few points on reforming that. Well, first of all, tell us why we should reform it. In other words, why is that a bad thing? You've clearly stated that there's a difference in because, the ratio. Because everybody's votes should count the same. Period. Why? Why should somebody from Alaska, why should their vote count more than mine? Well, and, and that, that, it, that's to me the heart of the discussion. That, that, and, that's, and that's it. That being a progressive from Indiana, the last time that my presidential vote counted in November was 2008. Well, being a conservative in Chicago, you can imagine what I feel. Yeah, right. Was 1980? Even my uh, three dead clones in the cemeteries, yeah. when they oh, vote... Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Vote early, vote often. But again, the point is, is not minimized. But here's a discussion for me. This is something that is anti-American in a sense. That this says that most the average American has taught to believe from early on in civics that your voting is the most important feature in a democratic um, machinery. We are literally taught this from the moment that we step into school, mm -hmm. that your vote is the most important aspect of democracy. Would that be fair to say? Would you agree with that in some ways? I, I mean, I think that in some ways that's certainly, it's that's, certainly up there. Excellent. Right. I actually, through my entire educational process and looking back, and I'm very much a conservative, as you know, but my understanding 
is it actually, it's one of the least important features of democracy is the actual ability, the franchise. Now, I know we fight for it and it's symbolic and all that. I'm not saying take it away mm -hmm. or diminish it overtly. However, I would offer a different perspective. So first off, you got to explain to me why you, Love you feel that. that uh, I'm so glad that, we're doing this that, podcast. Me too. Uh, <laughs> you got to explain to me why you feel that, that it's the least important part of our democracy. In many ways, it can be the least important because here's the thing. Let's say that we open up an Italian restaurant right here on the corner, mm -hmm. okay? And we have a thousand people that live within a hundred feet of that Italian restaurant, mm -hmm. okay? Now, we ask all of their opinions about that Italian restaurant and you, the people that are within that hundred feet proximity, let's say, very dense, yeah. are gonna give one point of view, but let's say we go over and we interview a thousand people about Italian food in general from a thousand miles away that have never experienced Italian food. Do you think that their opinion might be different? Uh, well. Hear me out. I, yeah, it's a great question. That's why we're here. <laughs> I, I know, that's why, that's why we're here. An Italian restaurant on a corner in Fort Wayne, Indiana, doesn't affect people in Anchorage, Alaska. Excellent. Absolutely. It doesn't affect It does the presidency them. most certainly does. But hang on. Hang on. So you actually you provided some great states, by the way. So let's take the concerns of people in, say, Alaska or Montana. Mm -hmm. In other words, their voting issues right. might be different than, say, Rhode Island or New York City. Sure or Amarillo, Texas, or right. whatever, right? Sure. So here's my point. The forefathers actually thought of that. And so I would argue as in defense of the Electoral College being roughly what it is today, I'm not saying we couldn't tinker around the edges, is that we have regional differences. We have a very large country here, uh -huh. okay? Democritus, the original Greek that came up with the word where we get the word democracy from, right. used to say that democracy, or meaning what was ultimately called democracy, could only work if you can get up on a clear day you know, you make your coffee, you have your olive oil, whatever they did back in the day 5,000 years ago, put your hand over your eyebrows, look out into the sunrise, and see the end of your borders. So his idea there was that the people are inside of a boundary, if you will, mm -hmm. and that the best representation of people in that boundary is by the people that are locally there. In other words, you can't care about the affairs of Denmark, obviously, when you're in Athens, let's say. And so democracy works best when you have that local, you know, think globally, act locally motif, as opposed to this idea that everything ought to be leveled and equal, because it isn't equal. If I'm living in Alaska, I might care about what happens with the Alaskan pipeline, whereas if I'm living in Amarillo, I care about what happens to cattle futures. Sure. If I'm living in Rhode Island, maybe I care about what's going on in the oyster overfishing well, legislation. You and, follow me? And so my vote, so it's not about- We have more than one level of representation. Our president is the highest level of our representation. We also have congressmen, senators, local officials, you know, who handle a lot of those things. Yes. You know, so like a pipeline coming through Alaska, granted, yes, there may be some, some federal intervention on that. Really, we're talking, that's a governor issue, right? We're talking, that's a state house issue there. So that's where your state house representatives are handling your local issues. That's not coming down from as far as a national policy perspective, although certainly sometimes it is. Absolutely. But, we only but, have one president. You, you make a very good yeah, point. We, that's we, why I believe yeah, in federalism. And so, and so we have many layers of representation everywhere from city council governments to mayors to state house and state senate representatives to governors to senators to congressmen to president. We have all of those. And you even vote for a coroner still. In some places, you vote for a dog catcher. 
Uh, yes. So. Well, this very Norman Rockwell view of America that I actually share with you, I wish we could get back to in many ways, mm-hmm. is exactly why many conservatives like myself defend the idea of federalism. Because what's happened, and this is to your point, because I think that we really have just fallen into another related topic, and that topic would be the change in the huge concentration, I'm sure you'd agree with me, and centralization of power in Washington, D.C., especially at the national level. And that actually is a detriment, and I think it does kind of dovetail quite nicely into this discussion about the Electoral College, because to put it simply, look, regional differences are going to cause for different types of votes. The people that have concerns in Alaska are going to be different from, say, Rhode Island. However, do they not get representation even at the federal level? I would argue the Electoral College allows for a diversity so that people that grow our crops and mine our oil and dig our gold or whatever they're doing also get a say in what goes on at a national do, level. Do you think people are digging our gold here? <laughs> digging gold. Where are we? Are we? Oh, exactly. Do we dig gold? Oh. <laughs> anyway, there's a very specific spot on, yeah. North, on Broadway in New York City. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's your card-carrying gold digger. Anyway, so... Um, but my point, though, is that regional representation... In, in many ways, is actually more important than simply one man or one woman mm-hmm. or, uh, vote because the individual votes are going to be more, to your point, I use the Italian restaurant analogy, it's going to be reflective of where you are. And where you are means that if most people, 80% plus, live on the coasts and in major urban areas, that means by definition, we're going to get legislation and representation that's going to be out of kilter compared to people that live out in the vast hinterland or in much less populated areas. I actually agree Do they with you. not get a say I, in I actually our agree. democracy? I actually agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, I feel that if you look at the number of congressional representatives— we are actually, and, and this is going to be a very unpopular thing to say, if you're looking at congressional representatives versus population, urban areas are actually underrepresented in Congress if you start doing the math on the number of people per congressman. As far as having an equilibrium, having each congressman represent the same number of people, Rural areas are overrepresented. It's certainly the case in the Senate, although we can't really do anything about that because there's two senators per state. So a state like California that has 40 million people and a state like uh, Alaska that has 400,000 people, they have the same number of senators. So, you know, you have two senators for 200,000 people apiece in Alaska, although it's a statewide election. Let's be very Mm -hmm. clear about that. And you have Two senators for 20 million people apiece in California, although, again, statewide election. In the Senate, we are overrepresented from a rural perspective. As far as, and and I know that you're going to kind of probably get to this point, but I'm going to jump to it really quickly. Urban areas tend to be more liberal, tend to. Fort Wayne is not that case. We have pockets of liberalism. Is that why you don't have any outdoor cafes? I would vote for liberalism if I could get more outdoor cafes. We have outdoor cafes. I have a excellence. patio right out here. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, you're a liberal. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Proves my point. There um, are good things about being a liberal. Be proud. Be yeah. strong. Yeah. However. There, there's pockets of that. And then, you know, again, in my county specifically, there's lots of rural areas, too. We have lots of Amish people who live in the same county that Fort Wayne is in, uh, although they don't vote. The uh, Do they have cell phones? They use cell phones. Ah. Uh. They don't have, but they use. They use them. That's very zen. They don't have electricity, but they use it. (laughs) So, because they all all own generators that they can put fuel in and generate electricity so that they can use their power tools to make stuff. 
Welcome to Love You Like a Brother, and we are talking about the antinomies of definition. Yeah. So I feel uh, that what we mentioned in our last podcast is that people tend to group together in identity groups. And yes. there are people that leave communities because they don't feel that they have any connection. They don't have those people that they can talk to. And so they move to bigger cities or urban areas where there are liberal bastions and what have you. One nice thing about our country is that we do have urban movement. Unlike, I don't know if you're aware of this, but like in Russia, traditionally China, even today, you're not allowed to move from one province to another. That's crazy. Without special permission, applications. Yeah. Think about that for a second. It's crazy. So let's say that, you know, like for us, it's no big deal. In America, it's pretty much like uh, you're 18 and don't let the door hit you in the bum and yeah, you're right. out of here, right? Yeah. And you can but move you can wherever get you want. And you can move wherever you want. So yeah. it's like, I was born in Vermont. I left. I never looked back. Right. I moved to California. You can move to Barrow, Alaska. You can move to, there you, go. you know, Key West. Yes. So, and the reason I bring that up, because that's a very cool, good, unique American thing. It's a very liberty and freedom. Typically, if you talk to an actual conservative, you'll hear a lot of the themes about liberty and freedom. And liberty and freedom means that essentially a Conservatives free society, don't own liberty and freedom. They don't own it, but they, they put a value on it. That's why they talk about it. I'm talking about I, genuine de- ones that are... No, Democrats... You know, I don't mean in a superficial you know, sense. No, no. Dem- Democrats... Traditional uh, have, Democrats? Absolutely. And I could go through it. I mean... Freedom of speech, for example. I mean, the whole movement in like the late 60s, freedom of speech and all that too, was definitely, that was definitely not a conservative cause. In fact, the liberals were correct in many ways, free speech, because it was the conservatives, often cases, that wanted to shut down free speech, and I would be totally against that. So that would be a good example of where you are 100% correct. However, the value still is if you believe in liberty and you believe in freedom, freedom of movement, then you realize that the beauty of our country is that we have freedom to move from different regional, for example, let's say that I'm coming out as gay, all right? Not that I am. Um, and you I heard don't, it here first, folks. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> right? On the broadcast, yes, a gorgeous American youth. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, and I'm living in some small little area in Nebraska, and I don't feel accepted. I feel like I need to spread my wings. What's nice about America is that I can go and I can move to like, you know, an urban area or an area where I feel is more like people that fit my identity group, if that's Mm -hmm. the case. And that's a nice thing. Even though it's important, every one man, one woman, one vote, that is important. I'm not saying it's not. What is even more important to keep a really true polycentric, wonderful society like America has traditionally been is the fact that we have regional representation as well. So that we're not having, let's say, five cities. Literally 70% of the people in this country live in five urban areas. Think about that for a second. Well, my point that I was going to make is that um, with the elimination of the Electoral College, I feel that people would feel less compelled to have to move to a larger city. Not that, not that that's the only reason to move to a larger city, but that is a compelling reason to do so. If my vote counts just as much in Fort Wayne, Indiana, as it does in Chicago, then why would I feel like I'd need to move out of Fort Wayne, Indiana? I completely agree with you, and that is the downside. So let's, let's actually think, and I want to make this interesting, as we are both trying to do, for the audience. So people that are listening, let's say that we go through with what Morrison just suggested. Let's kind of see this through, because that's mm-hmm. kind of how my blue-collar mind works. We eliminate the Electoral College. Morrison's vision comes true, and that's that if you're in rural Nebraska, you're in urban San Francisco, doesn't matter, one man, one vote, basically there's no need to then move to other areas because to do so could maybe come at the expense of the things that you're getting accomplished where you are. That to me actually would create exactly the problem with what the Greeks suffered from way back 5,000 years ago with the dissolution of what's called the city-states because then you create monadic populations 
where people are even less friendly, less open. There is this tribal mentality where you don't go in there because those people don't believe in X. Well, I believe in Y. And that actually would be very troubling, not to mention the fact that you're going to get overwhelming regional bias. People in San Francisco have different values, and that's okay, mm -hmm. than people that are living in, say, Omaha, Nebraska, mm -hmm. or Milford, uh, Texas. Right. Yeah. Or, exactly. Or right. Um, a South American city in Indiana. Right. Or Waikiki Beach, Tennessee. Right. And that's why, obviously, you see a wide breadth of views represented in Congress on extremes all the way into the center. Yeah. My simple defense of the Electoral College, if I could simplify it, is that we need to get away from a concentration of centralized power in D.C. In, in the presidency alone. Fought against King George. I think most people would agree that the federal government has way, way, way too much power. As a traditionalist, a person that believes in federalism, there's no perfect system in the world. Or as Winston Churchill once famously said, democracy is a horrible form of government, except for all the others. Right. And as a subscriber to that and learning all throughout history and coming through the Enlightenment, which informed, I think, more than anything, along with Christian values, the creation of this country was essentially an idea and an experiment that was supposed to pull away from all the failed regimes, from mercantilism in, in feudal England, from colonization, from the king, nobility, that sort of thing. Think of the French and uh, the different experiments. And a lot of it, obviously, Judeo-Christian was nothing more than a preservation of some of the best ideas that came from the ancient Greeks, particularly Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. And so this country, under a John Lockean worldview, means that we have a lot of space. And it's not a simple pie where it's a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. If I have this pie and it's this big, then your piece, by definition, is smaller. No, the traditional American value that helped make this country great is this idea that there's enough for everybody. You just have to go out and get it. And you can go as far as you want. You can become a bricklayer in San Francisco. You can become a coolie and work on the railroad track. You can go be a, a farmer. You can be a hunter. You can be a pilot. Whatever you want to be, essentially, that's what you can be. And that's OK. You have the liberty and the freedom to do so. So my point about the Italian restaurant earlier is that if we overprivilege the idea that it's one man, one vote, no matter what, and they're all should be equal, then you're going to get representational regional bias that's going to make all of our lives less free and less representative well, in a way. How is that? Because the regional representation, there is no electoral college on, the, on say, a congressman. Well, the Electoral College right. is a great question, so let me answer so, it. You get a chance to, to vote for a majority, but in your state. For example, everybody in Rhode Island gets a chance to choose who their electors I, are, essentially. When you're talking about regional representation, mm -hmm. when I think of regional representation, I think of our senators, governors, and congressmen, and also, of course, our mayor, city council, things like that. My regional representation is from the third district in Indiana. Yours is from whatever district in Illinois that you're in. As far as the presidency, that is a national representative that we have. Sure. And so the issue that we have with the Electoral College, and of course this has been a thing that's been brewing more fervently in the last 20 years, the fact that we've had a couple times where the person who got the popular vote did not win the presidency. And the last time it happened was in 2016 by 3 million votes. And there's speculation out there that one could win the presidency this next time around and still lose 5 million votes on the popular vote. That it's actually even is, higher than that. That is so. not a democracy. That's not democracy in any way, shape, or form. If you get 5 million people who are voting for somebody who then does not reach office over 
the person who does reach office. Mathematically, I'll agree with you mathematically that it is possible to win the presidency in this country with essentially 27%. Right. I get that. And that, even though mathematically, in reality, the way the Electoral College actually works is that, yeah, there are certain states that matter depending on your party, or not depending on your party, there are certain states that just matter. Right. And certain states that don't, because you have certain Michigan, states that are always going to Pennsylvania, Florida. Yeah, the Wisconsin, uh, you know, Florida, for example, Ohio. So, yeah, so we agree on that. But and that's, again, and that's a really good point to, to bring up sure. because I, I want to I talk about that next, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. But I guess my point is, is that, yes, when you put it that way, it sounds very bad that you can lose the popular vote, um, although that's a separate by discussion, millions. by millions, let's say, and still win. However, as a president of all of the country, then if it's a simple matter of majority, in other words, you have to take what's bad and then look at what, in my opinion, and I think a lot of the people that defend the Electoral College, what's even worse. For example, let me entertain another alternative point of view, and that's that if we have a simple majority, we get rid of the Electoral College, you can literally have five cities essentially choosing who the presidency is. And that would be an even worse evil because what happens is is that you create a situation where you have 300 plus million people living in a country that's many thousands of square miles that essentially is going to turn into tyranny of the majority versus tyranny of the minority. Let's I, say that we push... I have, I have this feeling, Andy, yep. that if those five cities were conservatives, you would not make that argument. But that's a presumption you shouldn't make. Because for me, I wouldn't do that. And I beat up on the Republicans whenever they're wrong and anti-democratic and anti-fundamental, like true conservatism, as much as possible. Because it's not okay to say, I don't want you to have something um, because it's your issue, but I want to use the facilities or the office to then gain what I want. It's well, flip sides of well, the same and, point. And that's, you know, that's... So it's that's not the, for gerrymandering, that, for that's example. That's gerrymandering argument, right? Gerrymandering and, occurs on both sides, but it's not okay when the Republicans do it. And it's and not then, okay when Democrats do it. Exactly, right. because the real issue is that how does America win? And so that's where I become very, very traditionalist, arch-conservative, is to me the entire country from, as they say, sea to shining sea, and say, look, if we have a simple majority vote, here's what's going to happen. This is what I'm positing to you. Number one, you think voter fraud's a problem now? It will tenfold increase. You'll have pressures. You'll have a demagogue. You think Trump is bad now, and you think he's a demagogue? First off, I don't really yes. think that. I, don't, I really don't think that voter fraud is nearly the issue that a lot of folks on. I won't even say in the media, but more conspiracy theory minded. Brent Bozell, Media folks. Research. There are legitimate organizations I have found that found a million plus. And you can argue back and forth on the numbers of votes that were essentially illegal. Now, for whatever reason, it's not even, I'm not even going to mention the party because it's irrelevant. Because I believe that voting should be sacrosanct when it's carried out. There should be no interference, let's say, from other countries. There should be no auto-voting, signing up people in voter rolls. It happened to me three times living in Chicago where I'd go in to vote and I was registered as a Democrat. And I had to unregister and even face really nasty-looking stares when I said, I don't want a Democrat ballot. Thank you. And then everybody would drop their pen. It was kind of like that scene in American Beauty where she's smoking the cigarette when she's totally out of her mind because her Uh, veteran husband who's coming out of the closet is crazy. And someone rings the doorbell and she looks over and says nothing, but just looks like, why is the doorbell ringing? I've experienced that. That's why I always use what Alan Dershowitz calls the shoe test. The shoe is on the other foot. So in Indiana, it's a little different. You don't register as a party. When you vote in the primary, you just tell them what ballot you want. So I would pull a Democrat ballot and then I pick who I want to make it in the November election. So, and if you're a Republican, like let's say this last time around, we have a pretty heavily contested mayor's race on the Republican side running against Tom Henry, who's a Democrat here. 
mm-hmm. you'd pull a Republican ballot and you'd pick who you'd want to run for mayor as well as your city council seats and your county, uh, I believe your county council as well, and um, your sure. trustees and township trustees and your township government as well. I'll submit to you that majority votes are very important. The micro level, the closer you get to the actual lived experience, lived neighborhood community is where majority votes matter the most. And I would argue that you have that system in the Electoral College because it essentially it's a majority per state situation with it creating electors to balance out as a check against mob rule, uh, simple majority, which would encourage all the things that would basically create regional bias, it would create a demagogue, and would promote a lot more voter fraud. In other words, then we'd be having every year, it'd be a contested election, so we'd say, well, I won by a million. No, you lost by a million. No, I won. Well, let's sue. You know, and, and Gore so, v. Bush. So let's, so let's talk about states where you know, they have historically been Democrat strongholds. Let's talk about Illinois, California, New York. Um, Ironically, California was not always a Democrat stronghold, believe it or not. No, I know It started changing under Reagan. Yeah. Well, in 1980, everywhere in the country except for Minnesota uh, was red. And then uh, that changed a little bit in 84. Reagan won by a landslide in his second term. Yeah, right. No, Interestingly enough. Certainly still a plurality. Say that California is a foregone conclusion that's going to be a Democrat win. Well, Uh, unfortunately, it is. Unfortunately, uh, it is. And I would argue a lot of illegal voting. Um, you've got people campaigning in South um, Central America for offices in Southern California. That is something that was extremely disturbing. But do you think about I, that? Why? I, yeah, it actually well, occurred. So what I want to talk about is that the votes over the plurality there don't add to your total, really. All you have to do is just win the state just by a simple majority. Anything over that. Sure, sure. So yeah. if you win a state by 80%. It's a buffer, yeah. You know, it's not like it goes to it goes to your popular vote total, but mm-hmm. it, whether you win by four votes or one vote or two million or 10 million, yeah. it doesn't matter. Meaningless. You're it's right. meaningless. Talk to us about superdelegates and how that works traditionally with the hey, Democrat I'm, Party. I am very against superdelegates. Explain why. Why? I'd love to hear why, yes. And Um, I agree with you, but I'd still love to hear why. No, I I feel that superdelegates are, I understand why they're in place and why they initially came into place, but I feel in the same way that the Electoral College, that that it is people who are in the party that have an ability to sway the election, which we saw certainly in 2016, and why there's certainly a lot of bad feelings still among many Democrats toward Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat. Oh, he isn't a Democrat now, and, and jumping no, he's, on. he's never been a Democrat. Of course, yeah. Yeah, he's been an independent. Yeah, independent um, socialist. And but, so, yeah. yeah, Democratic socialist and an independent, you know, that's one thing that Elizabeth Warren has going for, is that she is a Democrat, and she's been in the party for a really long time. Uh, and so I think that that will be a big swear for a lot of folks. But you're aware of the past, let's say, 50, 100 years, the decline of the actual party system in our country. That, to me, is, again, these are parallel issues that kind sure. of dovetail nicely into what the situation is. It used to be, for example, I remember even the KKK actually had a platform at a Democrat convention in 1926. Sure, sure. For right, example. Right, yeah. And, so, and obviously the Sutter's strategy, you know, flipped a yeah, lot of but either that. party used to have, basically, they would choose their candidate, but it all arose out of a convention. Yeah. And that is less so. So you can have these paratrooper-type candidates like, say, Reagan, really, obviously, and Trump, of course, not a Republican, certainly not a Republican, you know, sort of like helicoptering in and running a national campaign and sort of co-opting 
um, the Republican platform, and I would argue the same thing for the Democrats. It's really, right. again, you know, the same and again, issue. You know, if Republicans had superdelegates, Trump would not be president. I said that in our first podcast. I mean, I'll say that again. System. Yep. Um, so the, uh, Thank God that we don't. Right, and I think that we are getting closer as far as getting rid of superdelegates. They're not voting on the first ballot this time around. I feel that it just doesn't yeah. represent the American people who are voting for who they want to represent them in the election. Yeah, I agree. I think that, that the first thing is, you know, reform begins at home. And I think the Democrat Party has learned a lot since the Clintons are luckily losing their stranglehold, I would argue, in the past 20, 30 years on that party. And it is becoming, ironically, the Democrat Party is becoming more democratic. And, uh, and you're seeing that with 20, 30 plus candidates. And that's actually a very nice thing, as opposed to it's her turn kind of yeah, approach with right. the Clintons. And, and which you is know, what really created Bernie. Because Bernie, to me, was a reaction to the Clinton more than anything else. The reason that he had so many people, especially uh, younger generation, that were voting is because people were rejecting the idea of the political system on the left, and definitely Clinton. We're going to take a quick break, but I want to talk about the impacts of voter turnout in the absence of the Electoral College. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Love You Like a Brother. I'm Morrison Egan. And I'm Andy Beckett. What we, were, uh, what we were talking about is the Electoral College and to reform or not to reform. While we were on our quick break, I took a look at the differences in Electoral College representation. There's a massive difference between some states where an Electoral College has a representation of almost 350,000 more votes than the least represented state. And so I guess my point is, first off, Whoever gets the most votes should win. It's that way for governor, it's that way for Senate, it's that way for Congress, and it's the only election that we have in the country where whoever gets the plurality is not necessarily guaranteed the vote. And I also feel that, that there would be, um, some have argued that presidential campaigns would then only concentrate on a few states in order to win those over because they have the plurality of people there. So you would get campaigns that would only hit New York and California and perhaps Illinois and perhaps, you know, I don't know where. The rest of the country would be flyover. Yeah. Right. I think that's actually what happens now in the fact that you've got, as you mentioned earlier, just three or four states that really turn the tide in an election. Excellent point, but I and would- so, yep. and, and so with, uh, let's say Michigan, let's say Pennsylvania, let's say Florida, presidential candidates don't come to like Indiana, you know, and if they do, it's to support a congressional or a Senate candidate, not necessarily their own campaign during an election year. And so I think that you would find that there would be a greater turnout also of voters, people who maybe in our region in Indiana who don't vote because they know that their vote is going to get thrown away. And maybe in California or Illinois as well, like in Chicago, where people don't go out and vote because they're conservatives and they feel that their presidential vote will just be thrown away and disregarded. So getting rid of the Electoral College will actually make for more engagement and a higher voter turnout because everyone's votes count the same. It doesn't matter whether you are from Minnesota or Indiana or California or New York, your vote when you cast it counts just as much as everybody else's and it doesn't have a chance of being thrown away. Yeah, like I said, it sounds good in theory and it sounds all fair and equitable. The problem, the reality is, is that we have a situation where we'll have a tyranny of the majority versus a tyranny of the minority. And 
um, or the greater, what I call the greater of uh, two evils. So if you have just simply simple majority and you eliminate the electoral college, then the real problem is that not only do you have regional bias, so that means that, yeah, technically, if all of our votes are equal, those without a doubt are going to be concentrated in urban areas where you have a lot more people living in a dense area. Those people typically vote, uh, even though it's their individual vote, uh, they're still voting like as a block. And what that ultimately would translate into is that regional areas, you think it's bad now with flyover country, at least it's unpredictable. And what will happen, and the reason I argue that there'd be a lot more fraud, is because the fraud will be predictable because now you just simply need to get majority of votes in predictable areas, whereas now it is actually slightly more unpredictable, meaning that the states, we don't always know which states are going to be the swing states. We know which states are typically going to be blue or red, but we don't know necessarily in a national campaign which ones are going to flip one way or the other, such as Trump showed us with the last election with, with Michigan, Michigan with Wisconsin, Wisconsin et cetera. The right. good examples there. Right. So it is an imperfect system now. However, if we simply eliminate the Electoral College and go with simple majority voting, you're going to find it's going to be far greater, the tyranny that we would have, because essentially urban centers, which are highly concentrated with people, especially on the coast or in major urban areas, are going to essentially decide what values and what president, who's going to be the president, and what values will be represented in that, because they'll vote on block. Vast swaths of regional, sparsely populated areas of this country will be underrepresented, and we won't know <laughs> well, the voter fraud that we'll take. And, and I disagree with it being underrepresented because we already have laid out the fact that they're actually overrepresented in Congress. The rural areas are overrepresented in Congress. We have 435 members of the House, and those, again, doing the math, congressmen to, to the population via the census, they're actually overrepresented in Congress. And Congress is significantly to the right of the majority of the American people. And I'm not talking 51 or 50, 50 and a half percent. I'm talking a significant margin more than that. So that's where they get their representation from. The president of the United States represents all of us equally. He represents you as much as he represents me. And he represents a farmer in Montana just as much as he represents uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. See, that's, that's where I would argue the traditional federalist definition is that originally we are a collection of states. So that's what federalism means. So if we have 50 states, let's say, in the, uh, in the country. Well, let's say 52. Let's give 52 Washington, or Washington like, D.C. and like Puerto Rico. Or we could say, like Obama said, all 56 states. So anyway. Okay, so you're talking areas, territories, Virgin Islands. Fine. Sure. That's great. So, but those represent different geographical areas, and it's better to think in traditional terms of a president of the states as opposed to a president of all the people. Because the people, while their individual interests are very important, you are correct, it is the interest that you get from those different regions that would be underrepresented if you had simple majority. So people that do mine our oil well, or plant our sugar. Well, that's not true. That's Rico. why we have Congress. But then those the same argument works the both ways. Are the, right. are the but representatives I would of those people. But right. But then I, that's so the argument flips exactly the opposite then. So to your point about individual states have a chance to vote what their majority interests are. That's why you have individual caucuses, primaries, things like that. And of course, congressional representation, Senate representation. I know it's two Senate, senators per state. Mm -hmm. But that actually is 
the current situation, which is better. So the president is really basically there to then be an offshoot of what the individual states have decided that they want as president. So that, you know, states that are like Rhode Island or Montana that may have a particular type of interest but sparse urban population aren't basically cast to the side to have a very small regional area, although be it the most people live, you don't want 7% of the landmass representing 70% of the vote. Yeah, That's where that regional bias comes in. Landmasses don't vote. People do. But it doesn't matter vary, how though. much of space course. that is no, there. No question about it. But the regions are different. So my region is different. If I am a cattle farmer in Milford near Amarillo, Texas, mm-hmm. my interests by definition are going to be different than a lobster fisherman you know, up in northeast, the coast of the country. Now you're saying, well, it, that's okay because it's just the local elections that matter. No, national well, no, elections no. matter, I'm, I'm not especially say- with centralization I'm, of power. I, I am definitely not government. saying that local, local elections are Let the only ones that matter. But local elections certainly do matter in regional elections as well. As well they and should. And so that's why, you know, you have state governments and it's not just one big conglomerate state. It's a megalopolis. Right. Where you have essentially a king. To me, a demagogue would be just as dangerous as a king. And a demagogue would encourage the system itself, not that anybody would eventually individually encourage it, but the system itself would encourage more voter fraud if you had a simple majority election, and that would be a predictable outcome as opposed to, at least with the Electoral College, there's still voter fraud, don't get me wrong, but it's more spread out and it's less predictable, which means there's less of a cause or impetus for fraud because you don't know which states to do the fraud in. Whereas when there's a majority, a simple majority, you know which states to engage in uh, voter fraud because it's always going to be the most populous states. That's not going to change. People are not going to flock to Montana because there's a majority vote. If they want to live in Miami or L.A. or wherever, that's where they're going to live. And those interests will get represented, and less so what makes us a large, uh, diverse nation. So cattle farmers and people that drill our oil and plant our corn up in Nebraska or wherever, or Alaska, you know, pipeline, that kind of those, there has to be a leverage where there can be an equaling out of the different regional differences. So the president's really the president of the United States, not president of the United people, in a sense. And that's where, again, there's nothing wrong, in theory, with a simple majority. But we have plenty of opportunities before we get to the federal election to carry those out so that states are representing their individual majority interests. But at the same time, we're not letting uh, states that have sparse populations and different regional variations in culture and political interests, what have you, completely be eliminated from the political process ultimately with a winner-takes-all system. That's simply well, my defense of the electoral system. Sure, and, and, and I get that. And understanding that when the electoral college is created, part of it was a concern, and I think it's kind of a weak argument, but I can totally get it considering it was 200 and some odd years ago. 240 or 1787. So. Yeah, yeah. Long time ago. What is it, 240 electoral votes or two, something like that? You have to have at least 240 to actually be president of the United States. Otherwise, it goes to Congress, and you have to win by 26. Right. 26 or 27 votes. But what I was saying is that one of the concerns was that there would be many people who were in the colonies at the time, in some of the states at the time, who w- would not have even heard of who is running for president, let alone what they stand for or anything like that. I think in today's day and age, it's fair to say that if you want to know who's running for president, it's pretty easy and it's hard to actually avoid. I can imagine that 200 years ago, there were probably people living in the United States who 
maybe even didn't know who the president was because they were so remote and so recluse and so cut off from the rest of society. So Amish, maybe. Not not that per se, but but, yeah. but you know, mm -hmm. in today's world where it's not just a matter of a newspaper that shows up once a week or once every two weeks, but we are as a society in whole. If you want to have an idea of what is happening in the world and in the United States, it's very easy for you to find out. We agree on that. And but so that's exactly my point is the centralization of power. To me, we should reverse that rather than continuing the large trend over the past 40, 50, 60 years of a stronger centralization of power and influence in Washington, D.C. and at the executive level. That goes smack in the face of federalism and states' rights. To me, getting back more to, not an extreme, but getting back to a more of a balance where there is a reason and a difference in having a state. Otherwise, why even have states? Just eliminate them. They're all protectorates. And we have one king or president or whatever demagogue that we vote in. And they or she makes the decision for everyone, no matter whether you live in Puerto Rico or Virgin Islands. If we say nobody gets gas stoves, like they did in Berkeley the other day, then the majority says it because they voted in the president. That's what they decree. Now everyone has to live for it. So I'm you're telling you, Berkeley, California? <laughs> In Berkeley? Berkeley, California, yeah. They just passed, you cannot local, have gas A cooking. local ordinance. That's a local ordinance, a local yes. Ordinance, but that's right. my point. Fine, if they want to do that in Berserkly, as we say, when I lived out there, that's fine. That's America. God bless. However, if we start to continue the trend and eliminate and nationalize these things, then you're going to have what's called a tyranny of the majority. It's okay to have a majority rule as long as it doesn't violate minority rights. And that's something that's been sacrosanct for hundreds of years in the United States, is that it's not a simple majority rule because if we get a tyranny of the majority and it steps on individual and minority rights, then we really don't have a diverse country after all. And it can't be the case that because people in Berkeley, let's say, want to vote for no gas stoves, that everybody in Montana or let's say Louisiana has to then toe the line. And it eliminates all the regional differences. It levels people. And that, yes, by definition, is anti-libertarian. Well... I suppose that's true, although I don't think that we're going to see from a, a federal mandate saying you can't have a gas stove. Uh, well, <laughs> it, it, you don't think about it now, but it's like boiling the frog. You don't toss, because it's an endothermic animal, you don't toss it into the boiling water because the frog will go, ouch, and jump out. But you put it in that cold water, and now it's lukewarm. Now it's a little bit warmer. Then next you know you're having frog lids for dinner. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that is the slippery slope that we, we run into. Again, the Founding Fathers thought about this. And there's a reason why, very clever, is that if we have this country that we're going to continue at the time, like you said, the colonies, spreading east, manifest destiny, whatever you want to call it, sea to shining sea, we have a large population geographically. And in many ways, the, the geography also represents different values. The people that live in those different areas are no less important in terms of their opinions than the people that are concentrated in an urban majority. That's why I use the, the clear example, which I thought was pretty clever, of a thousand people living a hundred feet from an Italian restaurant and a thousand people that have never seen an Italian restaurant. Now, they're going to have a different point of view. And by definition, if we have, let's say, a thousand people that are voting on let's say, what to do with milk farming, and they live totally away from milk farming, but only 100 people live where there's milk farming. Therefore, they're a minority, and they are the most affected by the majority's opinion because of simple geography. And that's the reason why the Electoral College should stand. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, Andy, for being here today. And, Thank you. And uh, it's been uh, real fun. And we're going to continue next week with some new topics. And we're going to agree to disagree on this one, as we always do. So. Lovingly so. <laughs>
Uh, we will see you next week. Uh, please find us wherever podcasts are distributed. You can find us on our Patreon if you would like to help support this broadcast. And I'm Morrison Egan. And I'm Andy Beckett. And you've been listening to Love Like a Brother. We will see you next week with a new topic. Please feel free to uh, reach out to us and let us know what you'd like to hear about. Uh, we'd be happy to uh, yak about it with each other for you. And buy green stamps. Thank you very much. I don't know what green stamps are. Something from World War II. Oh, okay. Right. By war bonds. Yeah. Very See good. you next week. We're out.